0: Alright, and now, um, please stay standing for just a second longer. I'm going to read to you from the Romans text that the teaching comes out of. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. O no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. As we've been going through the book of Romans, remember that the first 11 chapters focus upon um, the gospel. And here we get to chapter 12, and we're into 13. And and from chapter 12 forward, there's a focus on the law. And so we're focused on the commandment section. And so the structure is this. Because of the gospel, we know that we've been saved from our guilt by the grace of God. And now, out of gratitude, chapter 12 forward, we ought to live in such a manner as to show that gratitude. Not in order to achieve our salvation, but because we have already been saved. And so, we are considering what is laid out in verse 9. We've gone through uh, do not commit adultery. We've gone through do not murder. And we're talking about commandment to not steal. And so we've been looking at the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, and how it pulls together the doctrine of scripture about theft, about the obligations of property. Now, the other thing is, I want to remind you that chapter 13, the beginning of it, and a big chunk of chapter 12, focuses on the fifth commandment and talks about the obligations of honor and the obligations that we have in terms of relative stations and gifting. So the fifth commandment is about honor and the glory of God. When we talk about the commandment to not commit adultery, the seventh commandment is about pleasure and the glory of God. The commandment to not murder, the sixth commandment, is the commandment about power and the glory of God. And then the eighth commandment is the commandment about money and the glory of God. And so we continue to be in there. Now, at the on page one of the handout, I, I included uh, some things about the dominion mandate. And I wanted to simply remind you that we are the image and likeness of God. Uh, we are rational creatures. And so we, are, we have information that we act based upon. We have goals. We're purposive. And we make choices in the pursuit of those goals. And so that is the rationality of us as creatures uh, explained in a little bit more detail. And when you think about property and dominion and the use of our authority that we've been given, dominion in itself is about using authority in order to accomplish goals. So dominion in itself is authority. The work of dominion is the subduing of things, the maintaining of things, the, the, the governance, the act of governing property. And so we have to apply thought, and there's this work of naming and organizing mentally, and then there's the subduing work, the organizing of the matter and the material that is under our authority. And so that's this work of of dominion that we have. And there's a work of dominion that we have against sin as well, that we're commanded to rule over sin. So there's a a moral element. Uh, But this initial giving of the dominion command has to do with the rule over the material world. And so the Eighth Commandment is sort of an extending out from that. Now, as we build up property... Uh, Genesis, when there's the giving of this dominion uh, command, verse 28 of chapter 1 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's blessing is about making it so that there's a, a power to be effective, he tells us to be fruitful and multiply, to have children, in other words. And that's for the filling of the earth with the knowledge of God, filling the earth with people to know God, and this subduing of the earth to make it fit for human inhabitants. And one of the things that's important to realize, we talked about how the private property order was established by God. The commandment to not steal means respect private property, right? If, if properties owned in common, like we said last time, then you can't steal. And if everybody owns everything, there's no stealing. And so the commandment to not steal establishes a private property order. And so the duty to change the world around us involves this private property ownership. And so this idea of dominion, there's a general grant of dominion to human beings over everything that's under human beings, the fish and their habitation, their their habitation, the the air, the, sorry, the sea, the, the birds and their habitation, the air, the beasts and their habitation, the earth, right? Those are all things that are under our authority. And so when things have not been worked upon, there's this ability to go and work and claim. And so there are duties of ownership and the duties of ownership include the idea of maintaining. And so there's this initial work of gaining, and there's a duty to maintain, which is why the Bible also has rules about neglect of property. And so we'll, we'll see that. But one of the neglects would be, for example, this idea that if you were to have property and you leave a hazard that's easily accessible to others and they get to it, then if they are harmed by that thing that you've left out, you bear responsibility as a property owner. And so this idea of maintaining and that there are property rights, there are also property duties. And so when we look into in the second part of the positive commands, and hopefully we'll get through the negative commands as well today associated with the Eighth Commandment, we'll be considering that there are duties of ownership and duties to not neglect or to harm that capability of of ownership, but rather we're to seek to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth and to exercise the dominion that we've been given now I'm going to jump to, I'm going to read the question again, uh, the first one is question 141, so the larger catechism, question 141 what are the duties required in the 8th commandment, and we'll be uh, starting, not by going through all of it again, but by going through the part where we left off So here's the question. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like entanglements, engagements, sorry, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Okay, so look at page 3.15. I'm going to be k- picking back up with a provident care and study. Okay. So, a provident care and study to get, keep, use and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition. Okay, so provident care, we talked about that some last time, uh, but I, I rushed through this section. We have a duty to Provident has to do with this idea of, of looking forward. It has the, the two words there are pro, which has to do with forward, and vident has to do with looking. So there's looking forward. So a provident care, a, a care that looks forward, and a studying. We have a duty to, to focus our minds upon planning to do things. Some people take the commandment of the Lord to not be anxious and they abuse it, they twist it into not planning and not trying to think about risks and to avoid them. The book of Proverbs says that a a prudent man sees danger and avoids it. Okay, So not being anxious does not mean don't think about the future and don't plan. It means don't be anxious about the future. You plan, and if you look at the future and you go, there's so much to do, and I have so few resources, how can we possibly do this? You then stop yourself and say, the Lord is with me, and he will empower us to do our duties. He will give us strength to go forward. He will help us to subdue the earth. He will help us to disciple the nations. He will help us to raise our children. He will help us to be able to pass on the faith and to be able to pass on the work that we have done, to cause the work of our hands to not be in vain. That is the trust, the not being anxious. Not being anxious and trusting does not mean you do not think and do not plan. So we have a duty of provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things. What things? Well, things that are necessary and convenient to our natures and stations. So things that are necessary to our natures are the things that we have to have have in order to do our duty. You need daily bread in order to eat to avoid suicide. Right? If If you don't provide for your body, you will die. And that would be a form of suicide. And it is a duty to not commit suicide. And so, if you work to get food, trust God for him to bless the effort. And so, this idea of working and thinking. You know, one of the interesting things about working to get food is that historically, and really at a base level now, right the way we get food is by planning ahead most of a year. We take food, you put food in the ground, and you think, several months from now, the Lord will turn this into 30, 60, or 100 pieces of food. It is a very forward-looking enterprise. And so, what it requires is for you to have food that you don't have to eat right now, that you can put into the ground, right? I mean, like, literally, you're going, I would like to eat this, but instead what I would like to do is put this in the ground. Think about how contrary to intuition that is. Put it on the ground. That's what I do with trash. Like most of the time, people deal with trash by digging a hole and putting it there. Now, we do that on a large scale. We use trucks and backhoes and large plots of land, and we have trucks take our trash away so that they can be put in the ground somewhere else. That's how advanced we are. Our holes are far away. And so that's what we do. On a basic level, we dig holes in the ground, we put trash there. And that's what you do with this food that you think is so valuable, that it will give you food in the future. If you dig in the ground and you put the food there, and there's a care to it, right? What you do is you keep putting other things to the ground, like water. Well, here's water. I'd like to drink this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour it in the ground. And these activities, think about how fruitless they would be, how fruitless they would appear, if it weren't for the fact that this is the way that God has always made fruit. And so that idea of putting this stuff in the ground and it turns into more food. The complexity of the mechanisms by which a seed takes dirt and water and turns it into more seed is a lot higher than the complexity of our back hose or of our automated farming equipment. The complexity of those mechanisms are astounding. And so, we trust God, we, we do what God has commanded, we do the work that we've been told to do, and we plan for the future, and then we trust that God is going to bless us, to provide for us. So, the work of getting, keeping, using, and disposing of those things that are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature. You do work, and you rely upon God to provide for your duties. And then, you're looking for what are the things that are suitable for your condition. And there's a, a fun proof text here. And the fun proof text is on page 5. Matthew eleven eight. 8. It says, But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. So this is talking about uh, John the Baptist. And so, this idea John the Baptist is a preacher. He's a preacher who's making straight, he's cleaning up the path that the king is going to go down. Right? Make straight the way of the Lord. He, he, is, he is tidying up the street. And so he's in the middle of tidying up the street so the king can go down it. And the street here, the way of the Lord is going through Israel. He's got to clean up the mess in Israel. And so you know what did you expect to find? He's out there in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, And he's not wearing fine garments. It doesn't work particularly well for foraging for locusts and honey, apparently. So the fine garments are not what he's wearing. What did you expect him to see? He's wearing things that are suitable to his condition, which is telling Israel to repent in the wilderness. And so the station and place that we have, there are different things that are appropriate to have in those different stations and places. Now, as we come back up to to, to page 4. Proverbs 27, 23 to 27. I'm going to read that text. It says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. Proverbs is a book of general rules. And we always think the general rule is true, except as regards us. right? That's, that's the doubting tendency. So let's think about this. There's a commandment to be diligent in the work that we've been given. And this diligence is a energy and focus on that work. Right? You apply energy into it, you're focusing on it. So easy to not focus and to go from thing to thing to thing to thing and not to get very much done. Focusing on one thing and trying to get to a useful completion point. That is diligence. And so... You apply energy and focus to get things done. And so, if you own a flock, and it's interesting. The Bible uses flocks for lots of things. Kings have flocks, pastors have flocks, shepherds have flocks. And if you're the pastor of your home, your household's your flock. So, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. Know the state and attend to them. And so knowing them, right, we're told to, husbands, we're told to live with our lives, wives according to knowledge. So you know the state of your wife, and you seek to attend to her based upon how she is right now. You live with your children. If you have employees. If you have property. And so this is the general thing. Anything you have dominion, authority, responsibility, anything you have responsibility over... You attend to the state of it. You know the state of it. And you seek to work diligently in understanding that state and then working according to it. Why is that? Because the things you get don't last forever. They require work to get and they require work to maintain. So riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. So your property and your authority, if not attended to, will dissipate. Your property and your authority, if not attended to, will dissipate. When they're attended to, they increase. When you apply the law of God to them. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. So think about this you're dealing with your flocks. Knowing the state of the flocks includes knowing the seasons that they are in and the activities to be done. So the hay is removed. What time is that? When is the hay removed from fields? It's the harvest. So when the harvest happens, all of a sudden all this land that was being used for growing becomes empty. And what grows on it? Grass. So you Let the sheep go through there. Now, what's going to happen there? The sheep are going to eat, and they're also going to expel the things they ate, which will make those fields better for future growing. And so the benefit is you get to feed them for free on the land, and it's a benefit. You've also removed the hay, so they are not eating the stuff that's profitable to grow. You've got it. So... Then, while you're out with sheep, if your sheep are all scattered around and you got to care for your sheep, what can you do while you're out there? Well, you can forage and gather stuff while you're looking around the countryside. So the pulling in of the herbs. As a result, the lambs are going to get through that cold season because the autumn is when the harvest is and you're doing this during the winter. Okay, And so they're going to grow wool. And at the end of that period of time when they're no longer cold, and in fact, it would be hard for them to have a lot of wool on, when it gets hotter, you remove the wool and it cares for them and it gives you material for clothing. And in that period of time, after you've removed the wool, that is the time of spring and summer when they are having children. And then there's going to be milk from the goats because they've had children. And so the milk from the goats will provide food. So in the harvest you had food from the harvest. During the time when you're watching the sheep, there's a gathering of food in the hills. In the time when they're having children, you can have milk to feed, right? And so the idea is you are figuring out the harvest time of different things. There's the harvest in the fields, there's the harvest in the mountain, there's the harvest from the goats. And so all of those harvests you are tending and you can intelligently determine, "Hey, you know, I can't harvest when there's nothing in the field." But I can gather. And those things, this idea of you're looking for the opportunities. Every economic collapse is a time for people to get rich. Every time there's economic growth is a time for people to get rich. Every time when the economy is stagnant is an opportunity for people to get rich. That's what this is saying. It's saying every condition, there's opportunity to do work and there is profitable work to be done, and you need to pay attention to the things under your authority and find the opportunities to do profitable work. And if you do so, there's a blessing. Verse 26, The lambs will provide your clothing, the goats will provide the price of a field, you shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. This idea that you're gathering stuff in, the lambs are going to give you clothing, it's going to give you something to wear, and you're going to get the price of a field out of it. So think about this. When do you think land, when you're in agricultural society, is at its most expensive? Just before the harvest. When do you think it's at its cheapest? Just after a harvest. And so if you're caring for your animals well, and you're making money at the different seasons, then you're able to take advantage of things at the low point. That's the idea here, is that there's this time to do different kinds of work and if you know the state of things around you you are able to do profitable work now there's this magnification goat's milk, it says the goat's milk will provide food for you, for your household and for your maidservants, why maidservants as opposed to manservants, what's the point there aren't maidservants part of the household why why the magnification, aren't you a part of your household so it's you, not only you your household, not only your household the maidservants the maidservants are not men servants? Uh, it's, it's a hard thing for people to get today, but the maidservants are not manservants, and so they do different work, and here's the thing, the manservants can go out and they can take certain types of danger, they're expected to be shepherds, they're expected to do things, they're expected to do things that are more dangerous, that are rougher, and so there's almost always, even in economic collapse, room for men to go do high risk work, but what about the maidservants? The maidservants, there's a concern for their protection. You read the book of Ruth, and there's a concern that the maidservants don't go off by themselves, lest they be abused by men. And so, this idea that the maidservants are, are not able to, with the same freedom, go out and do these high-risk things, because you're trying to care for them. You're trying to protect them. You're trying to put, not put them in unnecessary danger. And so the provision for the maidservants is, the maidservants are more likely to do work in the house. They're more likely to do hospitality work. They're more likely to use raw goods to refine them. Hey, you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, and she's dealing with spindle and thread, right? She is not dealing with the collection of the raw materials as much out of the, out of the, uh, the sheep or, or, or pulling things out of the field as much, although you do see that work. I'm not saying that women can't do that. My point is simply there's a there's less low-risk work to do, and it requires wealth to do that. And so the idea is there will be provision so the maidservants can be fed and employed. And so this is a magnification that you'll be fed, your house will be fed, you'll even have the resources to provide for your maidservants. Now, go to page 5. This diligent care, right? We're talking about provident care and study to do the things that are necessary to get resources. Now, provident care involves also not just trying to get wealth, but also 1 Timothy 6, uh, we see the duties that once you have wealth. It says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Okay, so the rich. Don't be proud. Right? You, you think you're rich by your own power? You're not. It's by the power of God. Don't trust in your riches. They're uncertain. Rich people, do this. Be humble. Know that these things came from God. Trust in the living God who is certain and he certainly gives richly all the things that we enjoy. We're supposed to use our resources to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be ready to give and to be willing to share. So, if you do those things, there's a storing up of a good foundation. There's a storing up of possessions in heaven and there's a laying hold on eternal life. That's not justification by giving your stuff away or being a good rich person. That's the idea that you will increase in the possession of God as you apply the commandments of God. You, You will increase in the knowledge of God as you seek to meditate upon and apply his law. No matter your station. And that's the way that you can do it if you have plenty. So, The other thing is, there are different times of life. Not every time is the time when you're going out and you're young and you're trying to figure out how to build things and get things. Sometimes you're figuring out how to pass things on. Isaiah 38, verse 1, is about when you see death approaching. Now, all of us should see death approaching to some extent. We need to number our days. Your death is closer than you think, closer than it feels. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Emmaus, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. A a king that doesn't care about his kingdom doesn't get things in order to prepare for his succession. Alexander the not-so-great, on his deathbed, when he was asked, everyone could see he was dying. The man was passing away in front of them. The flower was fading. The grass was withering. He was dying. And he was asked, Who will be your successor? you die who will rule and he said to those around his deathbed I leave it to the strongest there was a man who wanted his generals to kill each other and they did there was a vast civil war and at the end of that civil war the land was consolidated around four major empires the Ptolemaic Egypt the Macedonian Empire the Bactrian Empire in the Far East, and then you saw the Seleucid Empire, which had Syria and parts of Persia. And so those four empires that came out of this conflagration and civil war were the result of a king who did not care for his people, that after his death, what he wanted was for no one to be able to overshadow him. And so that desire, as opposed to the desire to put things in order, when you want to put things in order, you try to make it so that the successor that follows you is greater than you. When you want to put things in order, your hope is, Lord, make the godliness of my successor and the prosperity of my successor so great that I am forgotten in his shadow. That humility, that desire to see those who come after you glorify God more fully that makes it so there's a tendency and a desire for peace and prosperity, the desire to pass on. So, when you set your house in order, right, if, if, you're, if you're planning for your own death, um, you might think about it further out, you might think about it closer in, but recognizing the fact that you, you will die. And so, if you live a long and productive life, then you need to hand over things under your authority by degrees, by giving management and delegation to godly children and servants. And what happens is we sometimes hand over by degrees to the ungodly. And we fortify them in their positions of power. And that is a sinful squandering of the gains. So when you plan for your own death, if you're responsible for a household, you, know, you get life insurance, you of build an estate, you train in the handing off of the management of that estate, and so you get your heirs to be rooted in the business of the house through rewards and co labor and so that process of of handing over and making it so that you are not as necessary for the well-being of everybody because you're trying to increase the value and effectiveness of other people. That is a thinking about one of our conditions that we are mortals. All right, so I'm going to go to point 16. Uh, we're called to have a lawful calling and to be diligent in it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 7.20 says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Now, that text is followed up with, you know, Okay, if you're a slave, but you're able to get your freedom, get your freedom. So it's not a statement that you shouldn't seek social mobility. It's not a statement that you shouldn't seek to improve your condition in life. But the idea that where you are, give it focus. Do your duty, don't run from it. Be rooted in the station that God has given to you. Seek to improve your station through lawful means. Dig down deep, be firm, be effective, gain honor, power, pleasure, and money through the application of God's law with diligence in the place that you've been planted. It is good for man to be rooted. It's good to have a place where you're known. It's good to have a place where you're expected to do things, where if you're not there, people feel it. Now, so you think about that compared to the preparing people for your death. You want to prepare people for your death not by being useless and saying, see, don't rely on me. You prepare people for your death by helping other people to be useful to be able to go on without you. But you want to make it so that your presence is known That you are doing work that relieves other of burdens. That you are doing work that creates value. That you're creating the covering. you're You're creating protection. You're creating a zone that is safe. When you shepherd sheep, you protect them from wolves and lions and bears and from thieves. And the idea that you are holding down your piece of the line. And so this... Remain in the same calling that you've got and do it well while you're there. There's a value to rootedness. Now, as we do this, here's the interesting thing. People want to run away from the place where they are because they think this is hard and maybe someplace else will be easier. And when you just run from place to place trying to find a thing where you can have the easy life, the result is that you with novelty and amusement and change, prevent yourself from solving deep problems. When you stay in a place and you work through things, the problems, the deep-rooted problems become clear. Those of you who have known me more recently, and, you know, this church more recently, you know, there are a number of positive things, but, you know, the process of getting to know people is... Partly the process of finding out you don't like them as much as you hoped you would. And so that process of finding out that everybody has problems, and that process of of working through those problems is difficult. Right? There's toil and strife, and we're all gonna die, so hey, nobody got time for this. But that's that's the temptation. Right? This I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this junk. Well, everywhere you go, there's junk. Everywhere you go, there's strife. Everywhere you go, there's toil. And so, what we're called to do, right, look at Genesis 2.15 at the bottom of page 5. Then the Lord took to the man Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. To, to do the positive work of adding to and the preservation work. Okay, now, the curse that comes in, in chapter 3 says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. We, We were given work before the fall. Working and keeping are good. They'll be working and keeping in the resurrected state. Working is not a result of the fall. Work's good. Life's born without work. Good work to do is necessary for happiness. So, the fall doesn't change the fact that there's work to do. The fall brings hardship. It reduces the fertility, the fecundity of land. It, it causes toil, so you have to work hard and painfully. There's, there's sweat of the brow. But the land is still going to yield bread to preserve man. And it's going to support the filling of the earth which means it's going to provide for increase. It's not just going to maintain the population that's there or maintain some declining population forever. The idea that the Lord is going to cause the bread of the ground to be given to us. And that's going to be enough for us. and It's going to be enough to fill the earth. We're going to accomplish that still. And so this idea that there is a, even in curse, that there's fruitfulness... If you stay in a place and you work hard and you deal with the toil and the strife and you deal with the limited nature of your own life, the way you maximize the effect of the limitations of your own life is by being in a place where you can deepen the work and where you can pass on things to other people. A stability to interact with people in a deep way. It makes the flitting about something that is more destructive than if we were to live long lives. And so you look, the interesting thing is a lot of people have this romanticized view of sort of uh, of mission work and this constant traveling around. You go, look, Paul traveled around and Jesus traveled around, so why can't I do those things? Are you the Christ? Are you an apostle? Is Is your call to go around forever laying the foundation, giving people revelation in a time when the scripture was not complete? Are you a prophet or the son of a prophet? Now, there's time for preaching in places that aren't your home. Right? But this idea that you go to a place and you plant a church and you build and you stay and you work. Right? Rootedness, husbands and wives staying together and building homes. People building businesses and discipling for a long time. People building churches for a long time and seeing maturation in the discipleship there. People seeking to see the prosperity of their city—that rootedness of work—that allows you to have a deep knowledge of the state of your flocks. And so, this idea of the, you know, Amazon Prime pastor, right? We talked about that. You come in, there's free shipping, straight from the seminary warehouse. That principle is. Bogus. The church is supposed to develop its own pastors and raise them up, because you know their lives. Church is the seminary, and there's a planting, and there's recognition, and there's connection through presbyteries. But this idea of rootedness and connectedness, and where you become known and you know, that creates transparency. And it puts pressure for change. So the obligation to be in a place. There are a number of benefits there. I'm going to move on to the next section, though, because we're right out of time. So the duty of frugality has to do with not wasting. What you need to do, you, you can go towards this tendency. The proof texts there are fun. They have to do with collecting the fragments and not squandering. Right? When there's the, the, the miracle with all the food that's generated with the fish and the loaves, there's a bunch of food left over, and there's the collection of the fragments. And so you go, well, why would you do that? Why would you collect the fragments? Because there was so much food that there was a lot left. It was able to be put into multiple baskets and be taken with it, provided for the disciples for some time. And so what, how much work would it take to generate that? When you think about avoiding waste, you need to consider this. How much effort would it take to make the same thing versus to save it? If it's easier to just make it new rather than save it, throw it away. If it's more work to make it new than to save it, and you have a use for it, save it. And so you're doing an economic calculation in whether to save or not. That's frugality. That's the virtue of frugality. Now, point 18, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements. 1 Corinthians 6 is about um, how we should not go to law before the civil magistrate. Rather, we should go to law before the church court when there's a dispute between believers. And avoiding unnecessary lawsuits is not just avoiding unnecessary lawsuits before the civil magistrate. When you go to the church court, guess what? That's a lawsuit. If you go to the church court, that's a lawsuit. And so you seek to avoid that by going through the Matthew 18 process. You deal with conflict in private, then you deal with conflict with witnesses, then you deal with conflict in front of the church court if you can't resolve things in the first two stages, right? it's very shameful for the guilty party that they weren't able to resolve it before it went to church court. And the book of Proverbs warns against that. Settle your matter before you come to the church court lest you be shamed. So this idea that you want to try to solve things. And even if you're the innocent party, even if you're the party who has been harmed and you're owed something... Are you able to negotiate something out that will save the time and trouble, that will save the expense? Oftentimes, sadly, the answer is no, you can't because other people are so unreasonable. And so that's not an unnecessary lawsuit. That's a necessary lawsuit where the expense and difficulty of the suit is worth the cost in order to obtain some just result. Now, another thing we're told to be concerned about is surety ship. Surety ship. So, surety ship is guaranteeing other people's debts. Um, go to page eight, top of there. Taking on risk is foolish unless risk is unavoidable, or the possible gain outweighs the possible losses in light of the likelihood of outcomes. So, in other words, the probabilities of things and the magnitude of them. Right, So if you, if you can risk a dollar and you have a 50% chance of getting $10, take that risk every time. On the other hand, if you have to risk a dollar on investment and the potential gain is 50 cents and you think there's a 50% chance that you're going to lose the dollar, that's a losing investment. That's called gambling. Right, the difference between gambling and investment is the prospect of gain. The casinos don't gamble. The casinos are, in are investing. <laughs> the people who go to the casino are gambling. So, this idea that you have to manage risk, right? Let's be real risk is unavoidable. So, you have to think about these questions. I don't have time to explain these, maybe they'd make good discussion fodder. How can risk be measured? You've got to make lots of decisions about risk. How can you measure risk? How can you assess risk? How can gains be measured? You're, you're, you're always making choices about something you think you're going to get gain in. You do this thing, you think it's going to be better than not doing it. How can the two be compared and contrasted? How can choices be made to select opportunities for gains and risk? For loss, so as to maximize the likelihood and the magnitude of the gains and minimize the likelihood and magnitude of the losses. Think about this all the financial institutions do that. Insurance companies, banks, credit agencies, investment groups, bail bondsmen, financial instruments and institutions of every kind that's what they do. And some of them are very profitable for very long periods of time. So they seem to have figured out intelligent ways of assessing those things. Do you think that the thought work that any of them have put into it might be something that would be useful for you to understand as mental models so that you can make financial decisions and other decisions well for yourself? Figuring things out from scratch is a lot harder than hearing what other people have already figured out. Now, point nineteen. See so you no know answers, just questions. nineteen. And an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as ourselves, as well as our own. Um, Leviticus twenty five, thirty five talks about the duty to help your brother when he's down and out. Leviticus 25-35 is, I think, probably the basis for many good blues songs. Deuteronomy 22 is about the duty to, verses 1-4 to there, the duty to, when you see your brother's property in danger, to care for it. Exodus 23 is about when you see your enemy's property, your duty to care for it. Genesis 47 is about Joseph's use of his station. It's not commending his tyrannical taxation of the people, but once he's taxed them, he was excellent at managing the treasury of Pharaoh. He very intelligently made trades so as to extract all the goods out of the land uh, in exchange for food. So, the grain storage and selling were used to collect riches for the house of his master with prudence and good work. Now, all these things basically get to the summation of Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we all naturally look out for our own interests. Don't just do that. The Bible is not saying stop thinking about your own interests. Right? This is, this is a thing. People come to the Bible and they say, the Bible is not telling you to look out for your own interests. It says to be altruistic, to only care about your neighbor. Wrong, false, lies, the Bible tells you to care about your neighbor, but it doesn't say stop caring about your own interests. What it says is to look out for both. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't hate yourself. Right? There's this idea of hating self. that's talked about in the Bible. What's the point of that? The idea is to say, you are a fool. You don't know your own interest. And what you need to do is to put off the old man. You need to hate the old self. You need to hate the false beliefs. And you need to replace them. And there's nothing so intimate about you as your thoughts. You and God know your thoughts, and the ones you choose to share out of your mouth or by a pen. If you are seeking to replace your unbelief with faith in the Word of God, you are seeking to tear out part of yourself and to replace it with a new you. That's the hatred of self we're called to. Hate the falsehood you believe. Hate the portions of your mind that need to be torn down. The strongholds of unbelief. Every stronghold of unbelief is capable of being torn down by the word of God and ought to be torn down by the word of God. But we are called to seek our own interest. And you know what our interest is? Do that. Tear down the strongholds of unbelief and pursue the knowledge of God. And the actions that the law commands are actions that support us in pursuing the knowledge of God. Caring for your own interest and also caring for the interest of your brother, your neighbor, your enemy, that advances your growth in the knowledge of God. So, look out not only for your own interests, but also, also for the interests of others. So, the forbidden section. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? This is a magnificent list. Lots of things to not do here. And these help to make clear our positive duties. The sins that are forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, well, there's a neglect of the things that are required. Theft, robbery, man-stealing, receiving anything that's stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights, measures, right, it's false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves. Covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies, and getting, keeping, and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given us. Okay. So, the neglect of the duties required, we just went through all the positive duties. Don't neglect those. Next, theft. Right? That's the plain, obvious thing. Don't steal. Don't steal. Don't take property that's not yours. Robbery. Robbery is theft with the threat of force. Okay, so uh, getting mugged, that's robbery. A home invasion to take your stuff, that's robbery. Man stealing, right? So, that's, think about that. Man stealing. The Bible forbids unjust enslavement. The Bible forbids taking and capturing a person, taking the liberty from them. If you steal a person, you are wrongly taking away their liberty. And the Bible establishes for that a death penalty. So the appropriate thing to do when somebody wrongly captures and enslaves a person is to execute them. Now right now, one of the things that's common in Western civilization is the sex slave trade, where women are captured, and even boys are captured, and then are enslaved and put into use for prostitution, which is wicked, obviously. But what we don't see is people who are caught for that being executed. And the biblical just response to a person who steals someone in order to enslave them especially if you put them in that kind of oppression, is to execute them. So one of the reasons for that plague of wickedness on the land is the fact that we do not execute people who commit capital crimes. Man-stealing is a capital crime. Receiving things that are stolen. If somebody tells you, I stole this, buying it from them is wrong. Now the problem is, obviously when people steal things, they typically are trying to sell them in such a way as to avoid the appearance of them being stolen. But there are people who participate in buying. So you'll have, for example, you'll have, you'll have shops that are car repair shops that are involved in. There are people who steal cars, and that shop will be used, and you take a car to that shop, and they will help to set that car up to avoid it being apparently stolen. And they will help to fraudulently make it look not stolen. So there's a sort of a counterfeiting that occurs in that process. That process of taking stolen goods and trying to help them look like they're not stolen is also forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. And then selling them and passing them on. And if you knew that they are stolen, buying them. Uh, fraudulent dealing. right? So this idea that um, we should not deal with each other in such a way as to deceive each other, as to make promises and break them. right? So you make a contract, somebody gives you something today, and you're supposed to give them something... You know, later, right, you work with all your might to fulfill that promise. Uh, false weights and measures. So false weights and measures has to do with this. If I, if you say, I'd like to buy an ounce of silver from you, and I have an ounce of silver, and we can take that and we can, we can weigh it, right? I can go, okay, here's this silver, I'm putting it on something, see it's an ounce. And so you you could test that and you go, okay, this is the weight of this, and if you wanted to test if it was silver, there are additional things that you could do to try to check that out, but you just go, okay, here's this amount of it. You can work with a a scale, weights and measures, right? You can work with them and try to make them show that something weighs an ounce when it really only weighs .9 ounces. And if you do that 10 times, right, you can steal an ounce of silver, essentially. You're, You're selling silver, you're getting the full price of that silver, for an ounce of silver, and you're only giving 0.9 ounces, and after 10 times of doing that, you've stolen an ounce of silver from all your customers. So that process of false weights and measures, where you are promising to provide something and then trying to defraud by making it look as though you've fulfilled your obligation, that is forbidden. Our country, on a massive scale, has engaged in a false weights and measures campaign by unlinking the dollar from gold. Uh, What happened is the Federal Reserve had notes that were supposed to say, this thing is exchangeable for a certain amount of gold. And all of a sudden, one day, the federal government said, never mind, we are not going to give the gold anymore. And so that is when the United States of America went bankrupt and renounced all of its obligations and then just started to print money that was not linked to gold and to offer that money and pretend as though they were paying debts. So our country is participating in that still. And the Constitution specifically forbids the federal government from making anything legal tender except for gold and silver. And so the oath-breaking and defrauding that is an ongoing operation there is something that brings curse. One of the curses it brings is the manipulation of the market um, and the manipulation of the market by the printing of money makes it so there's a boom and bust cycle. We are all in the middle of a bust cycle right now. So all the economic harms of the increased magnitude of that bust cycle come from a nationwide false weights and measures campaign. Removing landmarks. So this isn't like saying it would be wrong to you know, tear down Mount Rushmore. But this is saying that landmarks are a way of measuring where property starts and ends, it's real estate. So imagine you build a wall next to your neighbor's property. And then imagine your neighbor figures out that they can scooch the wall because you didn't really do a great job of making that wall firm in the ground. It's not set in concrete. You didn't dig down at all. And they realized, if I just, like, walk over there and lean real hard, I can scooch it over an inch. And if they do that every day, they go out. They pretend to have a smoke break, scooch the wall an inch, and over a certain time, all of a sudden, 10 years down the road, you go, I don't remember my wall butting up against my house. I thought I built this wall, and it was on that side over there. And I don't remember my neighbor's yard having that extra 10 feet. That would be moving the landmark to try to take the land. And so that moving of landmarks is something that, you, know, you think about if you're trying to steal land, Somebody who knows their land well is going to notice that kind of thing. And so you do it typically when an owner is changing. You do it when there's somebody who doesn't have the resources to do a really good job of taking care of their property. And so you do it typically with the people who are more vulnerable. So the moving of landmarks is done against the vulnerable by those who know the land and who have greed and covetous for the land that's not theirs. And so that, that process of removing landmarks or moving them a way of stealing real estate. Injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man. So you, you make a contract that um, then you seek to uh, violate it. You seek to uh, argue differently from what the clear meaning of it is. Uh, those are the kinds of things that would be injustice or unfaithfulness there. So that's a form of stealing. In matters of trust, if you're given a responsibility, say somebody... You know, passes away, you're responsible for their estate and you're to manage that estate in trust for somebody who's a minority or incapable, you know, minority of age, they're, they're under the age of legal uh, majority they are uh, somebody who is incapacitated and you're responsible to care for them or their property, those kinds of things if you are not acting justly or faithfully there's, there's a fiduciary responsibility, the responsibility to act in good faith on behalf of the person you're representing that would be stealing if you are not being faithful or just in matters of trust. Uh, oppression, oppression is laying burdens on people under your authority beyond what is just, beyond what is uh, uh, caring for them. Uh, for example, our taxes. Right, the, the the book of First Samuel chapter eight says that it's a curse of God if there's a ten percent tax rate on the people. Okay, so our taxes are. Oppressive; they are higher than what God allows, because if it's ten percent or higher, the idea is, who are you? You think you're God? God demands a ten percent tithe, right? So that that curse that hey, if you have a king, he's going to charge you ten percent tax, is a warning about the dangers of centralization of government and oppressive taxation. And so that oppressive taxation is an example. But so there are other ways of oppressing anybody who's under your authority. Uh, trying to extract more from them than they can give without failing to do their other duties is a form of oppression. Extortion. Extortion is trying to extract things through the threat of force. So it's coercive power to demand things out of people, uh, using power to threaten unjustly. Usury. This is the thing that gets misdefined all over the place. A lot of times, Protestants fail to understand that the Protestant Reformation brought with it a total redefinition of usury. The Roman Catholic definition of usury was charging interest for loans. Period. Now you might have noticed that in Protestant countries there's lots of charging of interest for loans. Now, also in Romanist countries. But the idea was in Protestant countries that the Bible differentiates between charity loans and business loans. And so the biblical and Protestant definition of usury is taking interest against a charity loan or against a loan that ought to be a charity loan. And so if you have a brother that comes to you and they are in desperate need and you say, yeah, I'll give that to you for the low, low rate of 30% a month, right? and so that response is extorting its usury when you have a duty to care for them. So what you should do is give them that food either as a gift or as a charity loan. Now, this is not criminal. So what also happens in Protestant states is you'll end up with an effort to say, well, maybe we can differentiate between these and have criminal penalties for loans that should be uh, charity loans. We'll call them predatory loans. Or we'll set a maximum legal interest rate. All right? Those are efforts to criminalize sins that are not criminal in the Bible. So what should happen is the state should not punish people for lending at high interest rates and Christians should give charity loans without interest. And what would that do? It would maximally display the difference between Christian charity and the extortion that the world uses and would help to show the difference between the city of God and the city of man. So that is the legal order that the Bible establishes, the difference between charity loans and business loans, and there are no criminal penalties for usury, but it is a sin. Bribery is paying somebody to do something that is unjust. Vexatious lawsuits are lawsuits that are not worth the trouble or that are unjust, right? So if you spend $100,000 on a lawsuit over a $100 item, right, that would be a vexatious lawsuit. Unjust enclosures and depopulations. So unjust enclosures and depopulations. This would be like eminent domain. There's property that is for common use or that that is owned by a particular person and you close it off for your special use. Um, the way this was done more frequently in the Middle Ages is you'd have, like, the town would have a common area that was shared, and then you'd have, like, a ruler of the town just go, you know what, I'd like that, and they take it, and they make it their property, and they stop people from being able to use it. Um, but this can also be done with taking somebody else's private land and enclosing it for your use. Depopulations would be like eminent domain, if there's somebody's home and they make them move they're removing the people from that land and they might replace it with something else where no longer is somebody living there. The unjust removal of a person the forcing of a person to give up their property and so the taking of property that's not yours the removing of people from property that's not yours engrossing commodities to enhance the price This is another thing that is a sin, but that there's no criminal penalty in the Bible for. Engrossing commodities to enhance the price would be like when the Hunt brothers bought all the silver on the market that they could in order to try to control the price of silver and then sell it back at a really high price. That's buying in order to try to create a monopoly situation and manipulation of the market. So market manipulation is a type of fraud because what you're trying to do is you're trying to signal to everybody Hey, there's a bunch of buying going on by everybody. Everybody wants this stuff, and I have some to sell at a fabulous price of only three times what it cost last week. And so that process is an effort to defraud by putting false information out. However, it is not defrauding in the form of false weights and measures or lying about what you've got. You are simply buying and then selling. There is not a criminal action there. Market manipulation is criminal in our society, but it is not criminal in the Bible. I'll tell you what though, market manipulators tend to have the grenade blow up in their own hands. If you know about the Hunt brothers, it worked out for a while, and there were lots of Cadillacs, until there weren't. And so that process of trying to manipulate a market is not not criminal to buy and sell, but when you try to increase prices by buying, holding, and then seeking to manipulate the market and sell at a high point, what you're, you're doing is committing a sin because of the way that you're trying to manipulate others, but there is not a criminal behavior there. If you lie in the process, that's criminal. Because now you're committing a fraud of contract. All right, so... Unlawful callings. There is a type of work that would be sinful. For example, um, you know, taking, uh, you know, being an assassin, being a prostitute. Right? Those are obvious things where people take money and they're doing something that's unlawful. So there are other ones. You look at the law carefully to determine, does the law of God forbid what I'm doing? Can I take money for doing this without sinning? So then, 19, point 19 on page 13 says, All other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or enriching ourselves. So everything above that was a bunch of ways of unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of an unjust or sinful way of enriching ourselves. So these are a bunch of categories. It's all being collapsed into that. So that's the idea of what theft is. And then it moves into the inward element, covetousness. That's about the desire, right? Do you have an un- do you have an, an evil desire for something that's not yours, or do you have a disordered desire for something so that you love something more than God? That's covetousness. The inordinate pri- prizing and affecting of worldly goods—that's a type of covetousness. Right? If you love worldly goods more than God, that's inordinate. Every time you sin in order to get money, that's happening in your heart distrustful and distracting cares and studies and getting, keeping, and using them. Okay, So it's easy to work really hard and then go beyond that, abandon some duties and have distracting or distrustful cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using worldly goods. So that process, if, for example, it's the Sabbath today, if I'm thinking about how to run my business and which deals I can make happen, and stuff like that, right? Then I would have distracting cares that are keeping me from the Sabbath. And if I'm worried about, if I don't do this, how will I possibly pay my bills? I'm going to have a distrustful attitude. And so I have to put my concerns about business to the side on the Sabbath and focus on the knowledge of God and the duties in the church. And so... There's a difficulty that the more that you have to care for, the more there is that can draw your mind away. And that's a difficult thing. And so the idea is, the more God gives you authority, there's a testing that occurs there. Are you going to focus on those things and be distracted and be distrustful about them? Uh, or are you going to trust God and seek to apply the law? Envying at the prosperity of others. Right. So often we see other people do well and we're unhappy about it and we covet what they have, and we wish that we had it and that they didn't. Um, Idleness is forbidden in this. If you're idle, if you're not doing work that you ought to do, you are stealing from yourself and from others and from God. You've been given a life to do good work, to serve others, and to advance your own condition. Prodigality, which is giving things away foolishly. The prodigal son went and gave things away foolishly to his friends. He had friends until he ran out of stuff to give, and then he ran out of friends. Wasteful gaming, so that includes gambling, but also um, any sort of gaming that's wasteful. You can waste enormous amounts of time on games. Now, is it possible to play a game that costs money and for it to not be sinful? Yes, in a limited way. It's a type of recreation. You can you can put a quarter in a machine, whether it's you know got things flashing around on the screen that pay out money or don't and have it not be sin. But if it's wasteful, the wastefulness goes into how much time and how much risk are you taking. Um, It is possible to play games without sin, and in fact, they can be lawful recreations that are good. Play is play work. And children should play because they learn to work in play. But adults should generally not be playing unless they have still got to learn how to work. And then it's play work and then you figure out how to work and you find useful things to do. And so you can use play. There's a place for some recreation, limited recreation but it can be wasteful and we have to ask ourselves are there duties that I'm neglecting uh, in order to escape into gaming? But uh, 26. Oh, wait, sorry, no, still 25. Wasteful gaming. All other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate. Okay, so when you give away foolishly, when you're idle, when you're wasteful in gaming, you prejudice your own outward estate to be bad. You prejudice yourself towards poverty. It's possible to get rich, you can win the lottery your condition is prejudiced toward poverty. 26. And defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given us. Okay, so we are forbidden from all the ways that we unduly prejudice our own outward estate and all the ways that we defraud ourselves of the due use and comfort of the gifts, the material gifts that God has given to us. When we're wasteful, when we're idle, when we are prodigal, when we do these types of things, we rob ourselves, we defraud ourselves of the enjoyment of the blessings of God. All right, so, more time. Any comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Or those with speaking rights? Okay. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us to think carefully about the Eighth Commandment. We ask that you would help us to have a deep understanding of our duty to positively gain and manage property and of our duty to preserve it and to care for it well. We ask that you would bless us in caring for each other and seeking each other's good and prosperity. We know, Father, that wealth is nothing compared to wisdom and the knowledge of you is great wealth in itself and we know that you do not promise each and every one of us to be wealthy but we also know that you have told us that generally the way you have structured reality is such that if we do work and apply your law that you will give to us fruit of our labor and that you will help us to enjoy it and to be able to have inheritance to leave to our children and our children's children and so We know that this is the ordinary way that you order things. We ask that you would help us to work diligently and to seek to use the wealth that you give for your glory and not for the undue waste of time or for our own glory seeking or self seeking in ease but that we would use ease, that we would use leisure to bless others. That when we are freed up from the need to focus on lower things, that we are able to bless others and to create godly culture and to serve others and to give for the blessing of our brothers. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.